I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that built, got burned by, and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media, at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi guys, I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of a tap on the wrist podcast. The penultimate episode of season three. I like that word. Yes, you do like that <laughs> word. Otherwise known as episode 78. Yeah. <laughs> but it's crazy. Next week is our finale. I know. Um, I'm okay with taking a hike. Like, I'm I so tired. It is. And not of the podcast, of life. Like, this idea, I know almost the whole season we were like we can't wait for normal life to resume Mm -hmm. well now like semi-normal life is resumed and I'm freaking exhausted I know (laughs) I'm so tired I'm like what I planned every day this weekend why I know and then I like I think we talked about this but I was looking at the rest of my summer and I was like how am I busy like every weekend for the rest (sighs) of the summer I don't I don't know how that happened I know but it is exhausting and I like I, I know I texted you last night saying this. I was, you know, researching our finale episode. And I was like, I just don't feel like Googling anymore. I just don't want to research right now. And it wasn't because I don't like the podcast and I don't find what we're talking about interesting. Like you said, I'm just so tired. Yeah. I really just wanted to turn the TV on last night. That's what I wanted. veg out. And I was like, no, I need to finish this. I had a couple other things to do. And so... I am excited for us to take a hiatus. We'll mm-hmm. come back, do season four. We don't know what we're doing yet. We no. really haven't discussed it. We've really been focusing on season three. And um, I feel like, well, I feel like when season one ended, we like kind of maybe knew what season two was. I think we knew what season three was going to be when season two ended. But I think this is the first time where we have like literally zero idea. I know. <laughs> I mean, I have a, a couple of ideas that I've thought about, but we not, we have not discussed them. Oh, good. I'm glad that I'm glad that you've been thinking. <laughs> and I, I don't. I'm not going to throw them at you live as we record right now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we will obviously be throwing out promos. We're working on merch. Uh, so exciting things are happening this summer. Yeah. Just not new episodes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we do we do think we're we're gonna try to release some merch over the summer between seasons. We're not gonna like wait for season four to start, right? So that'll be exciting. And I mean, we have uh, a good friend. Shout out to Lee, who's been like sending us quotes quotes <laughs> as he's listened to episodes, which is really helpful. So please, if you have like something we have said in an episode that is hilarious to you, because. I think, like, Vanessa and I kind of forget. Yeah. Because, I don't know, we're in the moment when we're recording, and, like, there are some one-liners that stand out, but for the most part, I think there are way funnier things that we kind of forget about until someone else reminds us. Right. Or, like, I'll sort of remember the line, but not 100% correctly. 
Like, for example, our friend Lee texted us and said, I need a t-shirt that says, Good morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls. And, like, I had only remembered the Destroyer of Men's Souls part, but the good morning really, <laughs> really adds to it. Yeah. <laughs> so we... We would appreciate your feedback in that form. Send us an email, uh, tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Right. We're doing this backwards. And you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can also find us on social media, message us there, um, or just follow to see pictures from the episode. We're t- at tap on the wrist podcast. No, no, we're at a tap on the wrist podcast. See, this is why no, we can't do it backwards. That's not. It's we're at a tap on the wrist. We're at a t- this is why we can't, we can't do it backwards because I only know the email. <laughs> uh, well, how's your week been going? My week has been going okay. <laughs> it's just been really busy and stressful, um, but but pretty good. Oh, speaking of Lee again, just, just the whole intro is about him. <laughs> he for my birthday sent me a case like cases of different types of Bev. Bev! Which we had talked about. It's a canned wine um, a couple of episodes ago. I don't remember exactly which episode it was in. But it was our, our women alcohol spotlight of the week. Yep, yep. And it, you, can, you can see our posts about them on our Instagram. And uh, I've tried the Pinot Grigio, which was really good. Um, and I have, besides that, the Sauvignon Blanc and the Rosé. So... Maybe for our finale, we'll each have a can of Bev. You can get your Bev on. Mm-hmm. We can get our Bev on. Um, <laughs> yeah, my week has been really good. I actually went out on Tuesday to like a local bar with a friend, and it was just so nice to go back and like do the the cocktail dinner mm-hmm. thing with a friend on a weeknight. It's been so long; it felt yeah. so weird. But um, I had more cocktails than one should on a Tuesday night. <laughs> Um, but they were delicious. I had a watermelon frosé. Mm-hmm. So good. And then I had, like, a mule that they had, and I got another, um, drink that was, like, a version of a strawberry daiquiri, so really great. Nice. You saying that you had too much to drink reminded me that last weekend, which for some reason feels like, like a month ago, uh, was my birthday weekend, which we had mentioned on the podcast, and it was, like, weird like we went out to dinner with friends the next day was our other friend's birthday party like at an outdoor bar and it was just weirdly normal yeah i mean there's been a lot it's it's an up uptick in alcohol intake yeah i i realized that my alcohol tolerance has lowered significantly um because we went to dinner and drinks for my birthday, and the next day I was so hungover, I felt like total shit, and I had to go to this party, and I, yeah, but it was, it was worth it, just to have a nice, nice dinner out. Yes. However, in case you don't feel like going out to a restaurant and getting your drink on, I was at a, a local Astoria boutique called Lockwood, mm-hmm. um, which amazing place to find gifts and things yes but they have a website if you don't live in new york oh yes it's a great great place for all kinds of things but in their bar section i was like looking not that i need anything else for my bar Mm -hmm. but they had these little mixes and they're called craft mix and we'll post them on our instagram so you can see them but they look like little miniature kool-aid packets and it's like a powdered mix inside Uh uh-huh and it's little it's like 
craft cocktail mixes and you just add your liquor and water and mix it all up and serve it. And hear me out. I am a fan of like a traditionally made craft cocktail, all fresh ingredients. But like this is a fun, quick yeah, solution. It's a cute idea and like it's cute packaging. Super cute packaging. So I got cool flavors. I got four of them. Yeah, I got a mango margarita, which I mean, I love a marg. Strawberry mule is the one I'm holding right now. Yeah. I also got a passion fruit paloma, which makes me really excited because I love palomas and I like that I can make it with tequila oh, and not mezcal. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. And then there's a blood orange Mai Tai. That sounds delish. So I'm so curious for you to do them so you can see if they're actually good. Well, I will let you know. But yes, they uh, the company is called Craft Mix. You can order them online. They have social media at Craft Mix. I don't know if they're women-owned. I, I did not previously looked that up I just saw them and I really like liked their packaging like their flavors and thought it'd be a fun way to get some some new cocktail well you got them at a, at a female owned store I did so. get them at a female owned store in Astoria yeah okay so this week we've got two pretty awesome stories mm -hmm. definitely some I had not heard of before yeah definitely have not heard of them but interesting. Yes, always interesting. <laughs> uh, so enjoy, enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, today I'm going to be telling the story of the woman who is often credited with inventing the cocktail party. Ooh. Her name is Clarabelle Walsh. Clarabelle. Clarabelle. Uh, disclaimer up front that she really is probably falsely credited, um, and I'll get to that and why, but a lot of sources when you Google will claim that she is the person who originated the idea. She did not claim that herself, to be clear. Uh, and it's claimed that she did through the first cocktail party in 1917. But before I tell you about Clara, I'm gonna tell you about the man who does claim that he invented the cocktail party. Of course. <laughs> Himself. <laughs> So his name is Alec Waugh, uh, and he insisted that he invented the idea of drinks before dinner, or the cocktail party, in London in 1924. Now, I just said Clara was credited in 1917 as doing a cocktail party, so clearly he's full of shit, but <laughs> he wrote an essay in Esquire in the 1970s and legitimately wrote, it is my belief and boast that I invented the L London Cocktail Party in April of 1924. Well, sounds like a man to take credit. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, possible he didn't know about Clarabelle, you know, or anyone else who had thrown a cocktail party ever, but... I mean, pre-dinner drinks, that just seems normal. I know. Now... To think to be the first person to discover that. Like, I know. It seems it's Am seems I the so first person to drink a Coke while podcasting? <laughs> Can I claim that in my <laughs> Laura, who was the first to drink? <laughs> like if I say it, does it mean it? Oh man, sorry, Alec. But uh now so guys, sorry if you hear the rain outside. It is pouring. 
I hope it's calming your mind. Okay, so we're going to paint a picture of the time period that Clara Bell is living in, the early 20th century. And we know from past episodes that it wasn't considered proper for women to drink in public in most of Western society. Meh, meh. Uh, cocktails in general were marketed towards men and not to women. An article from Atlas Obscura noted that they were, quote, too strong for a delicate Victorian woman's sensibilities. Or considered to be. <sighs> not that they were. Because <laughs> we know we can take some cocktails. Our sensibilities are not affected. <laughs> so, despite this, there were companies who did try to market alcohol and cocktails to women as far back as the late 19th century. So there was one company called Hublin's, which was a cocktail mixer company, and they released an ad for a pre-made club punch in 1897 that read, in the past, the male sex were the only ones privileged to partake of the daintiest American drinks the cocktail. With the innovation of club cocktails, it has been made possible for the gentler sex to satisfy its curiosity in regard to the concoction about which so much has been written and said, and which has heretofore not been obtainable by them. Meh, meh. Like, what? what? The gentler sex can finally enjoy a cocktail. God, I really hate men of the 20th century. <laughs> but Sadly, though, this campaign failed, and respectable women still were not expected to be seen drinking in public. So the article I read in Atlas Obscura noted that there were two distinct things that were happening around this time that probably led to Clara hosting a party dedicated to cocktails within her own home. Okay, so first, something that we should all be familiar with by now, the temperance movement. Uh, it had really started to gain traction by this point, even though prohibition wasn't in effect, and kind of influenced a lot of people. So a lot of public drinking spaces were becoming less common, and people were drinking at home in privacy more often to like avoid, I don't know, like Carrier Nation coming yeah. and smashing up the bar. <laughs> Let's just move it to my living room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the second thing besides that is that there was this idea of, like, the new woman coming, right? So Victorian conventions were kind of on their way out at this point. Women were becoming a little bit more modernized. And traditions that had been upheld in the past, like having a household full of servants and having, like, elaborate multi-course meals weren't as common anymore. There were new household devices like the gas stoves and electric irons. So, like, again, not, no need for, like, tons of servants within your household. And ultimately, people's attitudes were kind of just starting to change at this point. I mean, we, we know there's a long way to go, but some ideas were changing. So, for example, again, instead of these big dinner parties, inviting friends into your home was becoming a little bit more casual so afternoon teas were becoming more common and here instead of providing a full meal for the group women would often serve just drinks and light foods like sandwiches and salads which i love an afternoon tea yeah they're so fun i love a cocktail party yeah <laughs> i love both um 
And of course, some of the drinks that were served at these tea parties were actually mixed drinks that included like punches and claret cups um, as women started to kind of shake off this idea that they couldn't drink. And that brings us to Miss Clarabelle Walsh. So Clarabelle was born on March 10th of 1884 in Kentucky as Clara D.D. Bell. And she became a millionaire before she turned 20. Wow. Yeah. So her father died in 18 of, 1890, 18 of 92. <laughs> in 1892. And as his only child, Clara became his sole heir, despite the fact that she was a woman. I hate that I have to say despite the fact that she was yeah. a woman. However, she was only eight at the time of her father's death. So his will laid out plans for a trust to be set up for her that would take care of her and her schooling and everything until she was at least 21 years old. Uh, and then she would be able to take control of the full close to $2 million that her father left. Now, due to her wealth and status, Clara got a really great education and was also allowed to focus on what the fuck she wanted to focus on, right? Because, like, she had money. She didn't need to rely on men or, you know, right. the very limited jobs that were available to women. She was kind of set already. No need to find a husband. Yeah. I mean, she does get married, but she didn't need to. So in 1903, the Boston Globe ran a feature on Clara Bell. I like calling her Clara Bell, even though I could just say Clara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, saying that she was not conventional, which I'm here for, and the society pages in general were fascinated by her because, again, not only was she rich, but she was so independent for her time that people were just like, I need to know more. In 1904, like I said, she does get married. She marries a wealthy St. Louis businessman, Julius S. Walsh Jr., hence Clarabelle Walsh. Uh, and they met when she was 14, but waited until she was 21 to get married. And... I couldn't find his age at the time of their meeting, but then I found an obituary of his, which says that he died at 52 in 1929. So when I did the math, that meant he'd be born in 1877. So he was seven years older than her. So when she was 14, he was 21. That's how old they but, were when they met. But they didn't get married. No, but I think it was implied that they were interested. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't there. Yeah. But... Yes, they didn't get married till she was twenty one, which you might because I feel like if it was if it was that wouldn't they have gotten married when she was eighteen? Yeah, you're right. You know what? You're right. Maybe Julius was a stand up guy. I'm sorry, Julius. Maybe they just met and knew each other. Yeah, hung out in similar circles. And then when she got older, he was like, "Wait, you're Clarabelle. Clarabelle. Yeah, got it going on. Clarabelle has got. I'm so glad you knew that reference." <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm sorry for Hold on, I have to, to stop, stop you again. Okay. I saw TikTok the other day. <laughs> okay, okay. And it was apparently the person who really... Oh, I've seen that. Who, who was Stacy. Yeah, her mom was the yeah. song about And I yeah. was like, oh my gosh. So yeah, Stacy. it was a TikTok by Stacy about her mom. Yeah, yeah, Anyways. I saw that too. Okay. Uh, very cool. Okay, so you might be thinking they got married when she was 21, which is when I also said that she would inherit all of her money. Mm. And you might be like, hmm. But 
No, Julius was not marrying her for her money. He prenupped it. No, well, kind of. <laughs> um, he he himself was very rich and worth an estimated ten million dollars. So he was like richer than her. Great. So there's two very rich people who got married. Exactly. Um, and the him not marrying her for money was evidenced by the fact that. After they got married, Clara got to keep control of all of her own money and her childhood home in Kentucky. Like, she got to keep the property and all her money. He wasn't going to touch it, which is kind of cool for that time. I'm going to go say Julius is a stand-up guy. Yeah. He wasn't into her when she was 14. I'm sorry. I take it back. Okay. So, a little bit about Clara as a person. She was a big fan of horses. (laughs) (laughs) She's a horse girl? She's a horse girl. Uh... (laughs) She was known to to buy and sell horses, uh, thoroughbred horses, throughout America and in Europe, uh, and even competed in local horse races herself, which... That's very Kentucky. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and it was pretty unique for women of her time. Usually that was, like, a man's thing, mm-hmm. as was, like, everything back then. Fucking I was going to say, what were women <laughs> allowed to do? So even throughout her marriage, she continued to travel a lot for these races. Uh, A podcast that also did an episode on Clara Bell called The Feast Podcast noted that she'd stop by the Walsh house if she had time. (laughs) Like, she didn't really live with her Mm -hmm. husband that much. She just, like, she traveled a lot. In fact, in 1907, she brought rooms at the Plaza Hotel in New York and became a permanent resident there. She spent most of her time on the East Coast and she would ride out in Central Park each morning. So ride her horse. Ride her horse. Horse. <laughs> ride her horse in Central Park. Could each you morning. imagine living in the plaza and riding your horse through Central Park every morning? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have money like that. Um, she also would spend some time at her childhood home in Kentucky, and then again a, a little a little bit of time in St. Louis with her husband. <laughs> But you, you know, know what? I, I'm not mad at that setup. <laughs> I think that's the level I strive for. I get my own rooms at the plaza <laughs> to myself. I get to ride my horse in Central Park, and like sometimes I'll see my husband. It's fine. I think I'd be okay with that kind yeah. of situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did hear this one story on the podcast that I wanted to use to kind of show her character. So during a 1912 horse race, a black male jockey was supposed to be riding one of her horses, and he was then barred from the competition because a white man, of course, complained about it because racism. Laura's eye roll just now was epic. (laughs) Again, men of the 20th century White men specifically. (laughs) Um, And Claire was really pissed about it. She boycotted the rest of the events, removed all of her horses from the competition immediately, and she was basically like, fuck that, that's not okay. Good for um, her. Yeah. So, now to the cocktail party that she was credited with inventing. As I mentioned, uh, it turns out that she probably didn't invent the cocktail party, nor did the dude that claimed he did. Okay. Um, because there were references to cocktail parties years before either of them threw one. So, for example, the New York Times Society pages in 1913 described a trend of cocktail parties among people in the upper echelons of society who were vacationing in France. I think it was like like the Vanderbilts, like that kind of status of people. 
Uh, and the article wrote that men and women guests gathered before dinner, gossiped at small tables, and, quote, drank mysterious mixtures. Mysterious. Well, I would think that whenever the first cocktail was created, there were cocktail there parties. There were cocktail parties. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I don't think it was like, look, you probably, we have probably no idea who the first, where the first cocktail party was because. It was in someone's house. Yeah, just a random person that was like, let's mix tequila and lime juice. Like, you know, like. Uh, right. Yeah. But anyway, uh, even earlier than that, in 1903, an actress named Lily, I think it's Langtree, hosted a party where cocktails were served and could be purchased. Uh, and then after the event, the Chicago Chronicle wrote, quote, that many society women drink ardent spirits and sometimes to excess is a well-known fact. So, like, they were drinking, even though it wasn't, like, supposed to happen in public. And there were, of course, many people who gave Lily a lot of shit about it, especially those involved in the temperance movement, uh, and they condemned her. So even though, like, these cocktail parties were happening, it wasn't really an accepted practice, especially when women were involved. Then as further proof that the cocktail party didn't take place in 1917 for the first time... That party wasn't even Clara herself's first cocktail party. (laughs) She had had previous cocktail parties before this one. Uh, The one that I heard about on this Feast podcast was called a baby ball. Any guesses what that means? Is it like a baby shower? It is a party where they invited their guests to dress as infants and children. Uh, and the country club where it was hosted was turned into an adult-sized nursery, including a huge slide. <laughs> oh, that's some weird... Yep. Weird-themed party stuff. Mm-hmm. Also, cocktails were served in oversized baby bottles. Okay. Clara and I are soulmates. <laughs> but... <laughs> you love a themed party. I love but it. Maybe I mean, not this one. <laughs> y- yes. However, I have thrown a baby shower where people had to drink their beer out of baby bottles. You, are, you, you, you did. That was I, a game, though. That was, was a game. Yeah, yeah. But, like, Claire and I would have been great friends, I think. Yeah. Independent. Oh, totally. Like, no need for no. Like, I just, yeah. Totally, totally, totally. And I do want to mention that Tom Bullock bartended at the location of this event, which was the St. Louis Country Club. I don't think it's confirmed that he, like, worked this specific event, but it was mentioned that she likely knew him, and the reason I bring him up is because we did an Instagram post about him. Um, He was the first black bartender to publish a cocktail manual called The Ideal Bartender, so if you want information about him, definitely check out that Instagram post um, or Google him, but, you know, follow us on Instagram, Tap on the Wrist Podcast. (laughs) It's at a tap on the wrist. Yeah, at a tap on the wrist. Oh, I was mixing our email address and our uh, Instagram handle. Okay, so back to Clara. So what she did in April of 1917, aka the quote-unquote first cocktail party, seems to be more of an update to the idea of afternoon tea. So as... As the Feast podcast said, she may not have created the first cocktail party, but she may have created the first boozy brunch. So society up until this point had really thought of the time for cocktails as being the later afternoon or early evening, just like that that guy that thinks he invented cocktail parties, you know, before dinner drinks or after dinner drinks. 
But this party that Clara threw was on a Sunday afternoon. Scandalous. Sounds like a brunch to me. Yep. So guests were allowed to stop by at high noon for a one-hour affair to grab a drink by a professional drink mixer, a.k.a. a bartender, at the Walsh's private bar in their home in St. Louis. The party featured individual drinks mixed by the bartender, and they were served standing up rather than sitting down. So it wasn't like a sit-down meal, like people were just mingling. You know, it kind of reminds me of like tall cocktail tables, even though I don't know if they had those back then. It was noted that she invited about 50 guests to the event, some of which were coming from church. Again, scandalous. Uh, and a reminder that women, again, weren't really supposed to be drinking in public, but it, that if they did, they would drink something light, like a punch or a claret cup, again, like I mentioned earlier. Um, something that could maybe be concealed, like in a teacup. But Clara was like, nah, fuck that. So instead of serving things like that, she served Sazeracs and Cloverleaf cocktails. Uh, the Tacoma Times wrote, if a woman guest who had been drink- driving all forenoon in her limousine, because they're rich, <laughs> and was a little chilled in consequence, felt the need of a drink with an extra kick in it, she ordered a Sazerac cocktail. Others, of course, preferred a Bronx or a Cloverleaf, and a few who had been to church were old-fashioned enough to order a martini or a Manhattan. So she was like, I'm not serving some lame-ass punch. I'm serving the real deal, man. Right. Real cocktails for real people. Yeah. So the reason that the party garnered so much attention was because that Tacoma Times article um, that I just quoted published the headline, which read, Cocktail Parties Are New Society Stunt About This Event. So it was like, New Society Stunt. So... The Feast podcast I listened to noted that they likely weren't talking about cocktail parties in general as new. They more likely were talking about this idea of holding them on Sunday afternoons specifically as a new idea. Right. So here's a little bit more of what the co- what the article said. What the cocktail said. What the article <laughs> said. So positively, the new set in society is the giving of cocktail parties. The cocktail party is a Sunday matinee affair, which originated here. So they're saying it originated here, but the idea of it on a Sunday. Right. Filling a long-felt Sunday want in society circles. Miss Walsh, because of her innovation, has become more of a social celebrity in St. Louis than ever. So this article that was written about Clarabelle's party, for some reason, garnered tons of attention from other newspapers. It spread all over the country and inspired others to host similar parties. So I guess while she may not have been the inventor of cocktail parties, she kind of, like, inspired a lot of people to have them. Right. Uh, And Pomp and Whimsy actually had a little section about her on their website. And they wrote, quote, "This This new style of drinks party quickly began to replace the stiff and boring tea parties of the Victorian era and brought the cocktail from the exclusive gentleman's club to the home where it could be imbibed equally by women. However, we know this didn't last long because, as we know, Prohibition kicked in a couple of years later, and while the parties may not have stopped, newspapers and society pages had to stop reporting on them. And just to wrap up Clarabelle's story, in 1923, she and Julius got a divorce, and she moved into the plaza permanently. Uh, The divorce was kind of scandalous back then, or divorce in general was. 
So she took to wearing black and insisted that she was a widow and not a divorcee. Uh, he would die like six years later, so I guess she'd have to lie for too many years. That's rude, though. Yeah. Uh, and then she never remarried. She did seem to have some affairs. Uh, the Feast podcast mentioned one with this guy who ended up like shot and killed. She was not involved, but <laughs> scandalous. And of course, she continued throwing parties until her death, sometimes with upwards of 200 guests. It was also noted on Pomp and Whimsy's website that her rooms became a well-known refuge for those seeking a private nightcap or two during the Prohibition years. Ah, she wasn't going to stop her drinking and her partying ways. She had many famous friends throughout her life, including Mae West, John Barrymore, Ethel Merman, the Qu Queen Mary of England, uh, Gregory Peck, and Dwight Eisenhower. She also regularly overrode the entertaining rules of the hotel by welcoming prominent minority figures and friends into her apartment. So again, she was like, fuck racism. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Love her. Uh, in 1957, Clara Bell was quoted as saying, Over the years, I must, I suppose, have entertained thousands of people in the seventh floor apartment where I live among my china dolls, hunting prints, overstuffed furniture, and photographs of friends. When in residence, my doors open to friends from five in the afternoon on. Like, she just wanted Every people day. to stop by. She just wanted to have a good time. Her. I love that. Me too. And I didn't know where to put this, but as I was Googling her, I randomly came across like one line in a Vulture article that was called Death Dogs and Eloise Made the Plaza Hotel What It Is Today. And it said, one of the widows was Clara Bell Walsh, who frequented the plaza's nightclub, The Persian Room, and had a terrier named Skippy, who had four movie offers and an obituary when he died. Wow. Like her dog had four movie <laughs> Well, yeah, if she's hanging out with those kinds of people, of course, they'd be like, we need a dog. <laughs> and Skippy was right there. Uh, so in 1957, Claire Bell threw a huge party for the Plaza's 50th anniversary, claiming that she was their longest living resident. And so, of course, she had to be the host. Of course. I feel like you guys would be friends. She's the... She's not the hostess with the mostest. Oh, that's, not a different, Pearl. that's a different person, yes. But her and Pearl would be friends, too. Even more evidence that you guys would be friends. Uh, when asked what she would be drinking at the party, she insisted that she would be drinking pure Kentucky bourbon that evening. Ooh. She thought that martinis were like, meh. She was like, I want bourbon. <laughs> she was a classy lady. But sadly, Clara would die that same year on August 12th of 1957 at the age of 73. She was buried at the Lexington Cemetery in Kentucky, uh, which would be near her childhood home, which was noted on findagrave.com that she had donated her home to the city of Lexington in 1940. And that is the story of Miss Clara Bell Walsh and the cocktail party. The sources that I used for this, which I think I kind of cited throughout, um, were an Alice Obscura article called Where the Cocktail Party Came From by Laura Carlson. The Feast Podcast, episode 23, hosted and written by also Laura Carlson. What? And I didn't realize until I was writing out my sources and like looking for the author, I was like, oh, thanks, Laura. That's so funny. <laughs> And then lastly, Pomp and Whimsy had an article called Toast to Her, Who Was Clara Bell Walsh? Nice. 
Okay, so you mentioned that Clara Bell is a fan of her bourbon, her Kentucky bourbon. Yes. And we are both fans of whiskey. Yes. Um, Thanks to you, actually. Yes. Laura's the one that made me realize that I like whiskey. This is true. (laughs) I think Vanessa only drank wine when I met her. Yeah, and like, you know, like a vodka cran, like stuff I drank in college, basically. But uh, we are both fans of whiskey now, and so today I'm going to start my story by saying how good you are at recognizing some whiskey branding, because it's going to play an important part in today's story. So I've chosen five very famous bottles of whiskey, and I've removed the Uh, labels from them. I'm really scared I'm not going to know any of them. You will. And if you listening at home want to play along, uh, I will put the pictures up on Instagram. So we're at a tap on the wrist, and we will put up the pictures without the logos. So, like, pause now before I start trying to guess them, I guess, and see if you guess them, too. Or guess them first. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start with this one on the far left. Okay. The first one's Jameson. Yes. Second one. Is one that I know. <laughs> I hope so. It's um, like my favorite. Uh, bullet. Yes. Okay, the third one. Is. <laughs> Do you recognize it? Yes, yes. Um, what about the fourth one? The fourth one's Jack Daniels. Okay. And the fifth Maker's one. Mark is the f- is is the other one. Yes, this one is Maker's Mark. Then the last one is Crown Royale. Yes. Okay, so you see you got them all. Did anyone else? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure most people did. They're- I mean, I tried to pick five pretty well-known bottles. Um, and as you can see, they all are shaped slightly different. They all have their identifying features. The reason I knew Jameson the fastest is because that's the whiskey that I first uh, tried, that Laura had me try. Right. Well, and it's a green bottle. Yes. Jameson and ginger ale. (laughs) Go to. (laughs) Uh, And so the reason that we played this is because branding uh, is so crucial when it comes to liquor sales. You want your customer to see your bottle know its reputation, and buy it. You know, I honestly never really thought about it. You you know, that, like, the bottles are all so distinct. That you can recognize them without the labels. Yeah, like, I I mean, obviously I can tell that they look different visually, but I never thought about the fact that, like, the bottle itself distinguished the brand. You know what I'm talking about? Do I sound like an idiot? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I'm like, you didn't realize that was part of it? (laughs) You know, it's just like a bottle. But it's not. Like, (laughs) everything is marketed a certain way and has a certain shape. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I feel like a lot of, like, vodka bottles and stuff are pretty similarly shaped. You know what I mean? They're not, though. Like, I'm sure if I did this same game with, like, gin or vodka, an absolute bottle looks very different than... The Smirnoff. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I'm stupid. Keep going. (laughs) Or like Malibu. We know Malibu is a white plastic bottle. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. So, okay. So, 
And we know Hendrix is blue glass. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I just keep going. Just keep rubbing it in. <laughs> so, <laughs> the reason we play this... Okay, I, I said that one already. Okay. So, today I am going to talk about a woman named Margie Samuels. And she is a woman who made her mark on the industry with the Maker's Mark brand. So, uh, hey. <laughs> that infamous red seal and square bottle design is known throughout the world, and it is due to the co-founder of the whiskey brand, Margie Mattingly Samuels. I don't think I knew that Maker's Mark was, like, found or co-founded by a woman. Yeah, it's a husband-wife team. Okay. Yes. We're going to get there. Okay. So, Margie was raised in the whiskey business. Her family, uh, her father's family co-founded the Mattingly and Moore Distillery, which is now the Barton 1792 Distillery in Bardstown, Kentucky, in the mid-1800s. So, Margie is a born and raised Kentuckian. Uh, she graduated at the top of her class from the Louisville Girls High School. Also like Clara Bell. She was also from Kentucky. Yes. Women of Kentucky, our theme. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then she went on to graduate from the University of Louisville with a chemistry degree in 1932. And it's while she's at L, she meets Bill Samuel Sr., who is a fourth-generation Kentucky distiller whose family also owned and operated a distillery uh, called the T.W. Samuels Distillery. And they fall madly in love, and they get married in the year 1937. It's interesting that they, like, happened to fall in love. Like, you know, like, two distiller families. Right. You would think that was almost, like, a business deal, but it's kind of cute that they, like, just found each other. I know. Or I wonder if it's just, like, a Kentucky thing. Yeah. Like, everyone's... Like, how many distillers? There's probably a lot of distillers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... So, after they graduate college, they actually move back to the Samuels Farm uh, in Bardstown, but Bill doesn't want to keep up the family business. He does want to remain a distiller, just not brewing the Samuels family whiskey, which... Okay. Probably made for an awkward Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, I think his family would be kind of pissed. Yeah, I don't have the info on that. <laughs> um, and so they end up actually leaving the Samuels home and they sell the, the distillery okay. and they move to a new farm that they call Star Hill Farm. It's located right in the heart of Whiskey Row in Bardstown, Kentucky. And it's said that they were neighbors to Colonel Jim and Mary Beam. Oh, the Bean. Yeah, yeah. Jim, Jim Bean. So, it is here where Margie and Bill decide to create a new whiskey. The family story goes that Bill, while coming from a long line of distillers, did not want to make his family whiskey because he was quoted as saying, Our family had made such god-awful whiskey for so long. Um, and he was known to actually torch the legacy family whiskey recipe. Holy shit. Um, like, and he, light it on fire. Like, yeah, yeah, like light burn it. On fire. it. Okay. Uh, and he was committed to running away from that taste profile as far as he could. Damn. 
Damn. He wanted his own whiskey. I I wonder how bad that whiskey was. I have no idea. (laughs) So Bill and Margie have to now create their own recipe. And so in order to do this, Bill gets out some pretty well-known friends. You know, Jack Daniels, Pappy Van Winkle. Oh, no big. Few names you (laughs) might know. Um, And he actually comes up with seven different recipes. Okay. Now, Kentucky whiskey, to be called a Kentucky whiskey, has to age for a minimum of four years. And Bill didn't want to wait that long to test his seven recipes. Uh-huh. So what he did is he had Margie bake a loaf of bread using the seven different types of whiskey because apparently the cooking process is, it does the same thing that like the aging of the whiskey would do flavor profile wise. I had no idea, but I kind of want whiskey bread now. Yeah, I, no, <laughs> I want whiskey and everything. Um, but so the idea was that after these seven loaves of bed, bread would be baked, a blind taste test would happen, and their favorite bread would be the whiskey recipe they would use. So this is what happened. Bill chose his favorite recipe, and it was the recipe that was quite unique. This is the one recipe that they brewed without the use of rye, where they used red wheat instead. Um, And this was his favorite bread, so this was the recipe they were going with. Question. Yes. I don't know if you might get to this. Is it because they use red wheat that they have the red on their bottle? No. Oh. I will get to that later, but no. Okay. So... Rye has a spiciness to it that can also be a little bit abrasive. Uh, And Bill Samuels wanted to get that bitter taste out of his whiskey. And this is just one of the things that sets Maker's Mark apart from other American whiskeys. Another thing that sets them apart is the spelling of whiskey on their bottles. They do not use the letter E. They spell whiskey W-H-I-S-K-Y. Weird. Um, They're not the only company. There are like three or four American whiskey companies that do that, but it is a more traditional Scottish spelling of whiskey. And interesting. That is what they do. Uh, Google Docs does not approve. <laughs> they try to correct you every time. Every time. <laughs> um, but having a, de- a decent whiskey is not what makes you world renowned. Uh, And the Samuels were not an overnight success. In fact, for over 25 years, they were a Kentucky-only brand. And people didn't know who they were unless you lived nearby. Yeah. Um, According to their grandson, who is now in charge of the Maker's Mark brand, Mm -hmm. um, he says that it's Margie, his grandmother, that played the key role in changing all of that for Maker's Mark. Of course she did. Yes. So let me tell you what she did. Okay. It was at Star Hill Farms that she single-handedly invented the Maker's Mark brand. The first thing she did was come up with the company logo. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to show you the logo. Right. Okay. Um, and no one ever really knows what this circle logo means on their bottles, but it is all very symbolic. The star represents Star Hill Farms. Where they brewed. Mm -hmm. The S stands for Samuels, their last name. Uh Uh-huh. And the Roman numeral 4 
is in reference to Bill Samuels being a fourth generation distiller. Very cute. I know. So it does seem like something a woman would come up with. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Margie also is responsible for designing the font on the label, as well as the idea of the label being like hand torn, okay. which is still used today. Mm-hmm. Um, and last, well, this is not last, second to last, but maybe the most important is the actual name Maker's Mark. Um, Margie came up with the name, which was very different than how people were naming their whiskeys in the 1950s. Uh, it was most common to name your whiskey or bourbon after the man who produced it, mm-hmm. like Elijah Craig, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam. Yeah. But when Bill had sold his family's farm, he'd also sold the rights to the family name. So he couldn't have his name on the bottle or else... We'd probably all know it as Bill Samuels. That seems strange, but I'm guessing that, like, whoever bought it wanted to keep making the whiskey. Under it the, did under have the Samuels in the name, yeah. yeah. So, they had to come up with a new name for their whiskey, and it's Margie who came up with Maker's Mark. She owned a very large English pewter collection, and, cool. <laughs> you know, as you do in the 1950s. <laughs> Uh, and apparently on English pewter dishes, the craftsmen would mark their proudest pieces um, to okay. identify being proud of it. And it was called the Mark of the Maker. So Margie took that, spun it as like, this is our proudest piece. This is our maker's mark. Oh, that's a cute idea. And that's how they got their name. Yeah. But she wasn't done yet. Mm-hmm. She wanted more. She, you know, the label and the name were great, meaningful, full of family symbolism, but she wanted people to recognize their bottle when they saw it. Right. So this is where we get that red wax seal. Uh, According to their son, Bill Samuels Jr., he has a very distinct memory of when Margie came up with the idea. So I'm going to read his quote. Okay. As associate editor of my high school yearbook, I'll never forget the day when I came home from school and all of my things were sitting outside because mom had thrown out my photo lab to set up a wax test kitchen in our basement. I was so aggravated with her at that moment, but looking back 60 years, I know that what she accomplished compared to what I might have is just monumental. I can imagine a teenager (laughs) being so fucking pissed off. I know. That his mom took out all his stuff. But he's so right. Like, in comparison, a yearbook to Maker's Mark yeah. as it is, you know. So, it's in their house where she created this finishing touch to the Maker's Mark brand, the wax closure on every bottle. And she got that, like, distinctive drippy look by melting the wax in a deep fryer until it was molten, taking the bottle, dipping it neck first... And then tipping it back over so that the wax could drip down the neck in a unique pattern. Um, Which is still to this day how every bottle of Maker's Mark is closed. Yeah. It is hand dipped. Still. Still. Hand dipped by a human into red wax and every wax seal is unique. That's a lot of bottles. It's a lot of dipping. Yeah. But cool. Yeah. Um, And it is... 
the wax itself is a little bit more plastic or rubbery than traditional candle wax. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, like, you can easily open it. It's, yeah. You know. And the first Maker's Bottle was hand-dipped in wax on May 8th of 1958, along with every bottle produced from Maker's Mark until today. Um, and the Samuels even had the foresight to trademark the wax dip look so that it would be unique mm-hmm. and forever. Um, and like I said before, her goal was to make people notice it, which they do. The red seal lid jumps out on a shelf. It jumps out from the back of a bar. And it has left Maker's Mark with some very clever advertising. So I'm going to show you just a couple of ads that they've used in the past. Can't wait. We're going to post these on social media again if you want to take a look at them. But the first one says, gentlemen may prefer blondes, but it takes a real man to handle a redhead. <laughs> that is really cute. That's know. like a really, that's a really cute ad. I know. And like, if you look, it's got like hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the second one might be my favorite of all of them. It isn't about getting ripped. It's about getting dipped. Oh my God. The bottle looks like it has abs. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. And all of... I- all of the Maker's Mark ads are the bottle against a, a very distinct black background. I was just going to say they have, they have like, a very similar look. Yeah, they, that's how almost yeah. all of them are. Another one is, it says, hand-dipped by actual hands. I love that. And the last one I have to show you, it's, um, the bottle is made to look like a nail polish bottle. Oh, yeah. And then it says, must be ladies' night. Trying to appeal to them ladies. So clever. And to be honest, Maker's Mark has kept Margie's logo, label, and red seal wax because it works. Uh, There have been discussions in recent years to kind of up the cool factor or modernize the look. And the family hasn't allowed it. Um, They are still very involved in the day-to-day business of Mm -hmm. Maker's Mark. And... They want to, like, honor Margie and don't want to change something because it, it works still. Right. Uh, Maker's Mark is actually relatively small, considering how well-known the brand is. It wasn't until the year 2007 when they added a second still to their production line. And then until 2014 when they added a third still. Um, and... Because there is a six-year aging process that goes into Maker's Mark, like, the effects of that third still are only being found in 2021. Holy shit. Yeah. So, like, they have not expanded ridiculously large in their 50 years. Six and Maker's years. Mark, I mean, considering it's small, it's, like, not that expensive, right? I feel like it's not. No. It's, it's not like Pappy. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's not like Pappy, but it's, I mean, it's also not the cheapest. Yeah. It's, it's pretty like mid But like, I would buy it if I wanted to It's good pretty reasonably priced. Yeah. Yes. Okay. For sure. Um, and do, 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 another thing I just thought was very cute is that they use like the same advertising agency that Bill Samuels Aww. used in the 1950s. With that black background ad right but it's like the same family small town kentucky advertising agency that's cute yes um and like i mentioned the red wax is still hand dipped 
by real humans on every single bottle. Amazing. And if you visit no their distillery Stop. in Kentucky, you can dip your own bottle. Oh my god, I want to so bad. I know. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh, you get I wonder can you buy the bottle once like the bottle that oh, you I, did? I'm sure you have to buy the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of I'm it. I'm sure that's part of it. Um but yeah, how cool I would is treasure that? it. I know, that's so fun. I want to go to there. Okay. So I have one more ad, and this just goes to show, like, they're very humble and small. This is an ad where it's their traditional ad style, but it highlights all the things people have suggested they change about their company. So, like, it says, add an E where whiskey uh-huh. is. Uh, fix the drip, because it's not uniform. Make the logo cooler, because it's kind of, you yeah. know, traditional. So, like... This this ad is just like no, we yeah. are who we are. We're gonna keep doing it. I love and that. Here is a picture of their um like, oh. uh, what is the line called? Uh, not an assembly line. Assembly yeah, line? yeah, an assembly yeah. line. Um, you can see the bottles closed but not dripped, and she here is dipping it into the red wax. So cool. Yes. So again, we'll post pictures. You can watch a video on YouTube of Uh like seeing how fast they go or how they do it. But uh, it's pretty great. So the shape of the bottle, the look of the label, the signature red wax topper, and even the name itself are all in thanks to Margie. And it's said that Margie is the reason most folks pick their first bottle of Maker's Mark up, but Bill is the reason they buy their second. Oh, that's cute. Yes. In 2014, Margie was the first woman with a connection to any distillery to receive the bourbon industry's highest honor. She was inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. Okay, Margie. Yes. Uh, And the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame recognizes individuals and organizations that have made a significant impact on bourbon's stature, growth, and awareness and it is the highest honor given within the industry. Uh, She is the fourth woman to receive this honor, but the first woman in connection to an actual bourbon distiller, Mm -hmm. um, not just within the bourbon business. A lot of the other women are like highest sales in bourbon. Uh, Right. They're part of like other parts of the industry, but she is the first with a connection. She's like an owner of a distillery. Okay. when they awarded this to her in 2014, um, this is what they said about Margie. This is a historic moment that is long overdue. Mrs. Samuels is one of many women in our industry to be directly involved with creating and growing a legendary bourbon brand. She absolutely changed the spirits industry. Her feminine bottle design and dripping wax was the beautiful red dress in a sea of boring gray dresses. We are proud to honor Mrs. Samuels, and we applaud her monumental contributions that forever changed the way bourbon is made and marketed. She transformed our industry, and we are eternally grateful. That's an awesome quote. Yes. She's an Uh, awesome lady. She is, and so awesome that in just this past March 2021 for Women's History Month, Maker's Mark celebrated Margie by putting her face on the label. So here's a picture of that. Oh, that looks really cool, actually. Yeah. So a lot of it is the same as a traditional Maker's Mark label. It's the hand-torn label. The logo is the same. 
They've just made it black, like they're the red advertising. Wax is still there. The red wax topper's there, and they've put her face on it. Yeah. This particular bottle is actually signed by her grandson cool. as well, or it's yeah, actually yeah. her son. So if you go to their distillery, it said you can buy signed bottles. Oh, cool! But that's a, another thing. Um, and who's going to Bardstown? <laughs> <laughs> and also famous for murder cases. Yes, I know. We should go there. Um. And a portion of this bottle, which is a limited series called the Founder Series, so I'm expecting us to see Bill's face on a bottle soon, uh-huh. uh, will be going to build a scholarship for women creatives. Oh, that's great. Which is yeah. wonderful. Uh, so, that, uh, Margie is no longer alive. Um, oh, I wanted to meet her. No, she is But I, fig- I kind of figured that. Yes, <laughs> uh, but she lived a very great life. She had a great legacy. And I just love that Maker's Mark is still, you know, a family business since, you know, her grandson is now in charge and they still honor her. Unlike Bill Samuels, who was like, fuck that family legacy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, if it was shitty whiskey, it was shitty whiskey, okay? (laughs) But, uh, so that is the story of Margie Samuels. Uh, I do have some resources. I used... Um, the Maker's Mark website, mm-hmm. um, they have a lovely rundown of all the members of the family and how they were involved. Um, then I went to distillerytrail.com, an article called Maker's Mark Celebrates Women's History Month with Margie Samuels. Uh, another article from thedrinkingtourist.com called A Woman's Touch, The Maker's Mark Story. And from whiskeycast.com, Margie Samuels to join Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. Awesome. So Two pretty awesome ladies from Kentucky. <laughs> Again, a theme we didn't plan. Yep. Okay. Everything I needed to know and so much more. <laughs> she just said that with like the flattest facial expression. I don't... <laughs> I know you meant it. You were... It, we did talk about some interesting things, but it was just funny. Okay, so it is time for our Woman in Alcohol feature of the week. Yes, and this one is close to home. Yes, and it's our last one of the season because next week the well, whole, yeah. the whole we episode will be about yeah. women in alcohol. Uh, yeah, so our last, our last female spotlight or women in alcohol spotlight uh, – is a pretty new to New York yeah. brewery here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, it's called Talea Beer Company. Yeah. So you probably haven't heard of it. No. We're staring at two of the cans right now, by the way, because Laura has some. I had it in my fridge. <laughs> uh, I, I heard about these ladies and their brewery from a friend of mine who's, like, really big in the beer world, and he has said, you know, there's a new brewery coming to Brooklyn, and it's female-owned. Like, mm-hmm. he knew we were doing this season. And so I had been watching them and watching them, and it literally, their their tap room opened in, like, May? Yeah. Uh, maybe April Something of like 2021. It's yeah, pretty yeah. new. Yeah. Uh, and I have already been twice. Mm-hmm. I've been once. Yes. And so, I guess let's do, like, how they started, and then we can talk about our opinions of the beer. Sure. So, Talea Beer Company, it starts with two women, 
named Leanne and Tara. Yes. And so Talaya is like the a combo. A, a combo of their names. Which is real cute. Tara and Leanne. Uh, and they were both really big beer drinkers and yeah. home brewers. Right. But they worked in the corporate world in tech and media um, before they like decided to make their passion for beer their career. Yeah. Which I love that. I like, love I, that too. <laughs> it makes me happy to like see people do that. I know. Like when your side hustle becomes your main hustle. Yep. So great. <laughs> Here for that. Um, but so they they did a lot uh, behind the scenes, like without their own tap room first. They like homebrewed, came up with a lot of recipes they liked. They went to another New York City brewery. Uh, which helped them kind of brew bigger batches that they could distribute. Mm -hmm. And then this year, I guess, they took, you know, the pandemic and maybe lower rent prices, that's <laughs> what I like to hope, and were able to open their own tap room and brewery. And it's beautiful. It is. I loved it there. It's, like, such an open, beautiful place. Like, the design is, like, kind of simple and modern, but just so cute. And welcoming. And you know, I hate to be sexist, but like, you can tell women designed <laughs> it. Like, you can. You, can. you definitely it can. Is, it is just so aesthetically pleasing to look at. It's yes. very like chic and like almost Instagrammable, as cliche mm -hmm. as that is. Um, and then that kind of also goes into their branding as well. Like their cans are... Beautiful. Yeah, they're real cute. They're not like, I, there's no freaking mountains with snow caps. Yeah, like, <laughs> like this one that Laura has is called Tart Deco and it's a mixed berry beer and it has like, it's like color, a colorful can, like stripes with different colors. It's it's real cute again, not to be sexist, but it looks like a, a woman designed the can. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just visually appealing and they actually, part of the reason that they did this was because they knew that beer was like a male dominated industry and they kind of wanted to be something different and like change that perception. And I love this quote from their website where it says that they wanted to speak to a broader audience when they launched Talea, creating quote, easy drinking beers, perhaps to replace a glass of rosé, which like is funny for me because I, was I still am a wine drinker, obviously, but I never drank beer, um, which we've talked about on the podcast, and I've recently started to drink beer. Very recent. Very recently. Uh, so when we went to Talea, I did, I got a whole, it was my first time ever getting a beer flight. I was so excited. And she drank the whole thing. I drank the whole thing and a glass of, a, diff, a Pilsner, was yeah. it? And a Pilsner that Laura, Laura has a friend that works at Tulay, and we got to try their Pilsner for free, and I drank it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that that's what's great about what they're doing is they're, they're brewing really good beers, but they're also beers that kind of cross that line between, like, a beer connoisseur or drinker and someone who's, like, just trying to get into beer. Like, it's beer for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Because and a lot of their beers are, like, fruited sours right. or fruited IPAs, which is having a moment in the beer world right now, so it is very on, on point with that. Um, and I know that's not everyone's kind of beer, but 
if it is your kind of beer, Talea is for you. It is, it is Vanessa's kind of beer. I'm t- like, like Laura said, I drank the whole flight, and it wasn't just because I didn't want to waste it. Like, I genuinely enjoyed every single, and I added a glass to the flight too. Remember, you could yeah. add an additional glass. Um, so yeah, I, I I really liked their beer. I really enjoyed it. And their their taps are changing because I I've been now twice. And both times, the rotation has been very different. Yes. Um, different flavors, different profiles. So I, I want to list off all the beers they have, but there's no point because it could be different tomorrow. Right. But like you were, I remember we looked at the menu before, like the beer menu before we went, and Laura was like, I didn't try that one. There wasn't that one, but when I, like she was so excited that there were different flavors that she could try this time. Yeah, so definitely if you come to visit New York City and you want to support a women-owned business, we recommend going to Williamsburg and trying Talea. Yeah, definitely. And again, I mean, their beer is great, and just again, the vibe and like, I mean, it's a good afternoon. It's a good afternoon. But we will post their social media information um, so that you can check them out. I don't know if they do any shipping, but like Laura said, if you're in New York, definitely check them out. Yeah, uh, I don't know if they distribute that yeah. way yet, but you can buy. So when I did go my first visit, I brought home beer. Right, right. Why? That's why it's in my fridge. <laughs> She stole it. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. No crimes have been committed. Um, but yeah, no, you can, you can buy their beer there. I kind of regret that I didn't, but I'll, I'll just have to go back. I mean, it's we're, we're in New York. Yeah. But we will post about them on our social media as well. You can find, I'm going to let Laura say it this time since I messed it up so bad in the intro. <laughs> so on Instagram and Twitter, we are at a tap on the wrist. And then you can email us tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Um, with any ideas for season four, because again, like we said, we are we're planning. We don't have a solid idea yet. So yeah, and help us out. I mean, I feel like we never say this, but like, go on Apple Podcast, rate, review, hit and that subscribe. subscribe button. Yeah. I mean, we love what we do, but we'd love if more people knew it. Yeah. <laughs> so help us out, especially as we go into this hiatus, and then. When we pick up for season four, we'd love to have some new followers join us. So, definitely. Until then, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>